Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. So you are a medical student or resident, and you've got an interest in sports medicine. You like kids, and you think that pediatrics may be the area you want to focus. So what's next? In this episode, we will discuss resources and things to think about when making the decision to be a pediatric sports medicine physician, and how to help choose a fellowship program that meets your goals. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Susanna Briskin. She is an associate professor in pediatrics at Case Western University School of Medicine. She completed her medical degree at the University of Rochester in New York, and then her pediatric residency at Rainbow Babies, where she served an extra year as chief resident. She then completed a two-year fellowship in primary care sports medicine at Akron Children's Hospital in Ohio. She joined the faculty at Rainbow Babies as a pediatric sports medicine specialist in 2005. Dr. Briskin also is an elected member to the Executive Committee for the American Academy of Pediatrics, or the AAP, Council on Sports Medicine and Fitness, and serves on the Education and Research Committees for the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, otherwise known as AMSSM. Of most importance for this podcast, Dr. Briskin is the Fellowship Director for the University Hospital Sports Medicine Institute Sports Medicine Fellowship in Cleveland, Ohio. Welcome to the podcast, Suze. Thank you for having me, Mark. Well, it's great to have you. So let's start off by talking about some things in terms of medical students. So, so if you're a medical student, you seem like you may have an interest in sports medicine. What should they consider doing? Probably the most important thing as a medical student is trying to identify some resources that are within your medical school that could help you pursue getting into an elective or connecting with a mentor within the field of sports medicine. The good news is sports medicine is accessible through both pediatrics, emergency medicine, internal medicine, family medicine, and PMNR. So oftentimes medical students will have access through at least one of those fields within their school. Yeah, it's helpful to have those resources out there. Anything else besides getting kind of hooked up with somebody as far as kind of a sports medicine mentor, so to speak? Absolutely. The good news is that we have multiple medical societies that meet throughout the country at different times of the year. So people can explore educational opportunities, not only through the AAP, but also AMSSM, as well as the Osteopathic Society, the AOASM. So there's always opportunities for medical students to attend meetings. So they can oftentimes attend those meetings and get connected uh, not only with mentors, but explore the field a little bit and determine whether or not the area interests them enough to pursue down the road. And I think that's an important point for medical students because sometimes they'll be a little bit shy as far as going to one of the major medical organizations just from fear of cost. And so I think it's important to realize for medical students that there is a great resource in each of those organizations and that they are cost-friendly to medical students typically. And several of them actually have some scholarships or grants available to them to attend those national meetings. And I think that's really a great way to get plugged in and kind of get a little bit more of a taste of what we do. Absolutely. So let's switch gears a little bit if you're a resident now. So I knew going into residency that I wanted to do sports medicine, but that's not the case for everybody. Not everybody has had that exposure. I was fortunately exposed to Dr. Greg Landry when I was a medical student, so I got the sports medicine bug early on. You know, say you're an intern, you get the itch about sports medicine as a career. What do you think they should do then? I was in a similar boat as you. I was exposed in medical school, but then when I pursued residency, I wasn't absolutely convinced I wanted to do sports medicine, and I ended up at 
a children's hospital that did not have anybody practicing sports medicine at the time. People can really end up in one of two circumstances. First is the situation I ended up in where there was nobody who was practicing sports medicine. And that can be a little bit more challenging for a resident. Oftentimes, you can connect with people in the pediatric orthopedic department, and you can try and determine if anybody on either the pediatric side of orthopedics or the adult side of orthopedics is practicing any sports medicine. I often recommend that people not only do rotations within the field, but you want to try and find somebody who could connect you so that you can start participating in all the sports medicine activities we do outside the hospital walls. And those often include training room time at schools, covering sporting events, as well as even participating in any of the didactics that they're offering that are relevant to the field. People who are at a residency program where there is sports medicine going on certainly have easier access to those opportunities. And you may or may not find somebody within your primary field. So in pediatrics, certainly there are quite a few of us practicing academic sports medicine throughout the country. But in some locations, you may need to access somebody within the family medicine department who's doing sports medicine. And really, any avenue you go is going to be totally fine. It's all about identifying somebody who can mentor you and give you advice, as well as allow you access during your first year to really start thinking about planning how you're going to prepare yourself for fellowship if that's what you decide to do in the end. So probably the best thing is at least setting up a two-week elective to gain exposure to the field and then starting to think about planning your second year so that you'd be allowed a more in-depth opportunity of a one-month elective, as well as coverage opportunities, and even start thinking about planning vacation time or elective time so you could attend one of those national organization meetings. All good points. I think it's really hard sometimes for an intern because you're overwhelmed a little bit as far as what's going on. And residency program is structured so much that that first year is a lot more intensive inpatient and you don't really get that outpatient thing. So you may not even get that exposure. So I think it's it's a lot harder for some to really kind of figure that out. But I think big part is that first year is you do get to figure out, do you really want to do inpatient medicine or do you want to do outpatient medicine? And I think that that can kind of steer you towards that sports medicine side. So we're up to second year of residency now. And Decisions need to be made whether or not you want to pursue fellowships. And what steps should a second year resident take? Well, hopefully you're able in your first year to at least think about planning your schedule to allow opportunities that are more in-depth. The main thing I really try and recommend people do at least a one-month elective in sports medicine. And if there's nobody doing primary care sports medicine, at least getting connected with somebody in the pediatric orthopedic field or on the adult ortho sports medicine side is totally acceptable. If you do have anybody who's practicing primary care sports medicine, this is really the main time where you want to set up an elective. I usually recommend trying to do an elective in the fall. That is our busiest time in clinic, and it's also our busiest time from a sports coverage perspective. And so it really gives you not only a good idea of what the field entails, so if you choose it as a career, you can make a good decision but it also gives the person who you're working with an opportunity to see you working and see you exploring different opportunities at a time of year where it's typically pretty hectic. Yeah, I think that fall time is crucial. I mean, it's everything. We're all running around as sports medicine doctors like chickens with their heads cut off and with all the different coverage opportunities in our clinics being packed. And so, you know, it's obviously it's not harmful to do it later, but certainly in the big picture of things, if you really want to get your bang for your buck, that early on time is going to be important. But say someone decides later on in their residency in second year that they want to do sports medicine, what would you suggest for those individuals? Well, that can definitely happen. Like you mentioned in pediatrics, you know, we don't get a lot of ambulatory clinic exposure in our first year. So it's not uncommon for somebody to start doing second year and then get exposure to ambulatory electives or maybe have their electives set later 
in sports medicine, and then they really get bit by the bug and they decide they want to do it for a career. So that's a pretty common occurrence for people. What's challenging is you have to apply in the summer right at the start of your third year. So you're definitely on a tighter schedule and you're probably at a disadvantage when applying for fellowships if you haven't done any coverage experience or an elective at that point. But I still recommend that you try and get an elective experience at least one month and you try and get in as much coverage experience as you can before your application has to go in. The only other thing to think about is whether or not you'd want to consider taking a year off. And as a fellowship director, I never look at it as a negative thing if people decide to take a year off before their fellowship. I actually think working for a year is a great professional skill to have. I see a lot of fellows who come into our training program who've already been out for a year, have a lot greater degree of autonomy. They're much more confident in their decision making on the sidelines. They're much more efficient in clinic. So there can be some benefit to taking a year out working in an urgent care setting, gaining more experience on the sidelines, attending a national meeting, and doing things that build the strength of your application as well as help you out in terms of growing professionally. So I think it is always worth the consideration for taking a year just to develop your application to be more competitive. Good points. And so if you're a pediatric resident, you've decided that you want to pursue a sports medicine fellowship. Let's talk a little bit now about ways that they can find programs. Both you and I know that training for sports medicine is it's dominated by our colleagues and family practice. And so not every program has things in place for a pediatrician to train there. So can you talk a little bit about those just searching for one and then what what they really need to look for when they are searching? Because we aren't hundreds and hundreds of pediatric sports medicine fellowship programs out there. Correct. The ACGME has the fellowships listed under different headings. You can be credentialed by pediatrics, you can be credentialed by family medicine, ER, or PMNR. The interesting thing is, regardless of who you're credentialed by under ACGME, those programs definitely cross training lines. So lots of PEDS programs take people from other areas of training and Likewise, family medicine is always considers pediatric residents depending on the program. The best resource I found is using the AMSSM fellowship webpage. They have all the fellowship programs listed throughout the country in a geographical manner. And then typically under each program, programs are responsible for keeping up a list uh, that is uh, accurate as to whether or not they'd consider people from other fields. That's usually a good starting point for people. And then I usually recommend if you are a pediatrician looking to apply to a program that is either family medicine based or based out of a different specialty, you email the program director or the program contact person and try and delineate whether or not they actually do accept people within pediatrics and their web pages up to date. We know that all the programs have to meet a minimum standard of things that a fellow has to get through in order to say that they've actually gone through a sports medicine fellowship training, but no two programs are alike. Can you kind of talk about a little ways in how programs may differ and things that the residents may need to look for as far as things that they're interested in? Sure. It's interesting because fellowships are a lot more apple and orange-like than residency programs. I felt like when I was looking around at residency programs, things were a lot more similar than dissimilar, where fellowship programs are different. There's a lot of leniency within the ACGME guidelines as to how things can be set up. What I really try and encourage applicants to do is find a program that meets their needs. From a perspective of picking programs for a pediatrician, it's great if you decide to pick a pediatrics program, 
but you want to make sure that you find one that's going to expose you to what you need exposed to. One of the things I recommend when you're looking at the difference between the PEDS programs and the family medicine programs is just trying to make sure that you're getting exposed to what you want to gain exposure to. Some of the pediatric fellowship programs strictly see pediatric patients within their clinic settings. Some of them see both adults and pediatrics. And likewise, if you go to a family medicine program, and you want exposure to pediatrics, you'll probably want to ask what percentage of their patients are pediatric. There's a lot of variability between locations, so it's important to try and identify, looking at the programs, which one's going to meet your needs for what you plan on practicing down the road. And I think an important point for residents to remember, too, is that most of us that have done a pediatric sports medicine fellowship, it's rarely exclusively pediatrics. And so most of us have done it where we have seen adults and that's perfectly fine. I mean, my practice is split up probably about 80, 20 from pediatrics to adults. And so I still see adults in my practice. And I think it's just a comfort factor once you get out and start doing your training, but having that exposure to adult sports medicine, I think is is helpful too. Absolutely. Because you don't know what your job's going to look like when you're done. The reality is that you can't predict if there'll be a strict pediatric sports medicine job opening available to you or whether or not it'll be a job that has a more mixed patient population. So I always encourage people to make sure that they're getting a diverse education within their fellowship so they feel comfortable when they're done. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue our discussion with Dr. Briskin on the process of applying for fellowships. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. Editing podcasts can be ugh, rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content, and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com because it's time to make your podcast soar. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Welcome back to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. We have Dr. Susanna Briskin joining us today from Rainbow Babies Children's Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio, and we are discussing the process of furthering your training as a pediatric sports medicine physician through a fellowship. Let's talk about that process of applying to a fellowship program. So we'll start with getting letters of recommendation. So who should they get them from? The majority of programs recommend that people submit a minimum of three letters of recommendation, but some programs do take four total. I typically tell everybody with your three letters of recommendation, one of them always comes from a program director. So that one you don't have a whole lot of choice about. 
But the other two, you have to be really thoughtful about who you get your letters from. I always recommend if you've been able to complete a primary care sports medicine elective that you use the faculty member who you spent the most time with as a letter writer if possible. And certainly if that person is a fellowship director, the letter will often carry more weight. So it's something you want to think about when you're setting up elective time to see whether or not somebody who is a fellowship director is available to spend time with you, either in the clinic setting or on the sidelines. And then from the perspective of a third letter, you really want to find somebody who knows you well. As a fellowship director, I would much rather read a letter from somebody who precepted you in clinic over time than read a letter from somebody you did a one-month elective, either in orthopedics or rheumatology or some other relevant field. It just carries a lot more weight when you're hearing from somebody who's seen you grow both academically or professionally over time, and it gives me insight into who you are as a person. So that's really kind of the minimum. If you haven't rotated with a primary care sports medicine provider, then finding somebody who's seen your musculoskeletal skills, either in rheumatology or orthopedics, is definitely acceptable because not everybody has the opportunity to rotate through a primary care sports medicine clinic. And then the only other thing I tell people is, If you don't get to do your elective time with the primary care sports medicine clinic until the fall when your application is already in during your third year, at least get three other letters in so your file is complete and then see whether or not you can submit a later letter from that primary care person. Even if it means the deadline has already passed, you can contact a program and ask if they would accept it. I think those are good points. I think having reviewed many letters of recommendation myself over the years, I think too many people try and get the name of a person, of that person who has a name out there, but doesn't necessarily know you. And you can tell that when you read a letter of recommendation. And I think that the letters of recommendation that really have stuck with me are the ones that tell me a lot about that person themselves, not necessarily that it's the name on the bottom who who signed it. And so I think just having people who know you and know you well and have, and like you said, have watched you grow and can attest to that. I think that's really the crucial parts for, for most people when they're looking at a letter of recommendation. For sure. Now let's move on to the personal statements, sometimes a, a source of angst for people when they write this. What do you look for in that personal statement as a fellowship director? I know. I remember stressing out writing my letters. Just getting that that statement together is such a stressful thing as an applicant. But Honestly, as a fellowship director, I don't put a lot of weight into the personal statement. For me, I mostly use it as a source of information to to discuss things with the person when they come through for interviews. It may be something where it's just a starting point for conversation for me. For me, I'm mostly looking to make sure the personal statement sounds like the individual is dedicated to the field. So I think it's important to explain why you're interested in sports medicine And the bulk of people don't know exactly what they want to do down the road, but certainly if you have an idea of what you want your practice to look like, you should discuss what you want to be doing down the road if you know already. I think the main thing is is just come across as sounding normal. I try to tell people all the time, don't put anything that could be a divisive concept in there. I've seen people write about religion or political views that I think can turn people off. I think you just need to discuss why you got interested in the field why you're applying. And if you know where you want to go down the road, then go ahead and explain it. But if you don't, it's not a big deal. You know, I've 
again, read so many personal statements myself, and some of them are so out there that I'm like, why did you even write it this way? That you just, you don't even know what their focus is at that point. And so I, I think just explaining yourself and who you are and why you got into what you're doing and your passion for what you're doing, I think those are all key points. I mean, the personal statements, they all start to look alike after a while too. And I think you probably would agree as a fellowship director that the personal statement has some weight, but it's not, it's not the make or break probably for most people. I agree. If anything, it's just something that can hurt you if you do it poorly, but it's not something that's going to be earth shattering. The only other thing I tell people is if you had anything unusual in your educational past, this is a good opportunity to explain it. If you took time off or you had an unusual health or family situation that affected your academic performance, using the personal statement as an opportunity to explain that is absolutely okay. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Now we're, we're getting to the actual application part on ERIS. When should they actually start that process? I really recommend starting to plan ahead in the end of your second year. If you're committed to the field and you know you're going to apply, you want to use that spring AMSSM or AOASM meeting if you can attend to start getting your list of fellowships together. Both of those organizations typically offer fellowship fairs where you can meet with people And you'll want to think about putting together a list of programs that you think you'd be interested in. I think one of the problems is that people really restrict their list based on geography. And when you start the application process, you need to keep your list broad because you don't know how many interviews you're going to get offered. You may want to even apply outside of your comfort zone geographically to start. Once you get your list together, you want to start thinking about getting organized right off the bat try and figure out if you're going to need three or four letters of recommendation and identify those letter writers early. From the perspective of the applications on ERAS, they typically open in early to mid-July, and every program has a different deadline. But getting that ERAS application going early, identifying your letter writers, and then thinking about organizing your ERAS application in a really clear and concise way is important. I'll see ERAS applications that literally have every single event somebody's covered separated off in a different box. And then I'm looking at a 75-page application that gets really redundant. So what I try and get the people who I mentor to do is really condense their coverage experience, do a single box for high school coverage, try and list not every game you attended, but attended all home, fall, football games for this school through these dates. You know, really try and condense the coverage down so that you only have a couple boxes with their coverage that really tries to highlight the bulk of what you did in a more concise manner than breaking things down box after box and page after page where you may lose the attention of somebody reviewing your file. Well, we could recognize that too as experienced people in sports medicine when you're just trying to make your CV kind of a lengthy thing rather than actually to the point and what you're really actually doing. So yeah. I, I agree with that part there too. Absolutely. And you want to think about getting your ERAS application submitted early. The information that needs to go in as an applicant on your end is not a lot. It's really about getting that personal statement solidified, getting that CV information transferred over onto the ERAS application and then getting your scores from uh, either your Comlex or your USMLE and your medical school dean's letter submitted. And then after that, the thing that tends to hold up most applications are those letters of recommendation. Some of the fellowship programs like ours, we review applications on a rolling basis. So the earlier your application is complete, the more likely you are to be offered an interview if you have a nice application that comes in. So I try and tell people, get their ERAS application in as soon as that window opens. But more importantly, make sure you've identified your letter writers early in the spring 
and really try and request a letter early so that when that ERAS window opens, hopefully your people who've decided to write a letter for you are able to get it submitted usually by early to mid-August, the latest. And that will give you a leg up on the competition when you're looking to get interviews. How about we switch to key do's or don'ts for your fellowship application, like kind of things that you think are absolutely essential for that application or things that don't ever do this? It always interests me when people don't list their coverage, but then you read their personal statement and they start talking about their experience on the sidelines at a certain game. And you realize, geez, this person's actually done coverage before. They just didn't list it. And it's not clear. And I see that a lot. I think it's really important to capture on those opening pages of ERAS the exposure you've had to relevant sports medicine experiences. You want to think about listing elective time in primary care sports medicine or any other relevant fields such as orthopedics, pediatric orthopedics, or even rheumatology or musculoskeletal radiology. Anything that shows you have an interest in the area and you're pursuing educational opportunities. The other thing you want to list is absolutely if you've attended any of the conferences that are relevant to our field. So AMSSM, AOASM, or AAP has the Council on Sports Medicine and Fitness single day meeting as part of their national conference in the fall. Really listing those can be beneficial. Finally, just listing whether or not you've done any coverage on the sidelines, attended any training rooms, or even done sports physicals. Those things really highlight the fact that you've explored our field and you understand what you're getting into down the road. The residents filled out their applications. Now they're starting to get invited to do interviews at programs. What should that resident do to prepare for that interview day and what may be some expectations for what's going to happen on their interview day? I always tell applicants they need to show up prepared. Some fellowship programs have more information online than others. Whatever information is available, you should review ahead of time. I tell people to familiarize themselves with the faculty at the program. They may not interview with all of them, but they are going to interview with some of them. So learning about those faculty, where they trained, what their interests are, what they like to see in clinic, just so that you at least have some familiarity with the person who's going to be interviewing you is always a good idea. And then having questions prepared. It doesn't matter if you ask the same question at every program because nobody knows the difference. But really trying to ask a meaningful question when you're interviewed is important. Sometimes the questions can be hard to come up with because, you know, there can be a program intro during the day that addresses most of the questions. But fellowship applicants definitely need to take a few minutes and at least have a good two to three questions prepared to ask each interviewer. And it can be something simple, even like, what do you look for in an applicant? Or, you know, what do you think the best part of your training program is? What do you think the worst or the the area of your program that needs the most development is? Something straightforward that can't be answered on a web page or in a talk. And something that's just thoughtful, I think, is important to ask. And then the only other thing I tell people is make sure that you talk with the fellows who are currently at the program. They will give you the best insight into what their experience has been so that you can figure out if that's the experience that you're interested in for yourself. And I tell people all the time, just remember when you have downtime with the fellows, if they're taking you out for a meal or driving you around on an interview, that it may seem like an informal experience at that time, but the fellows oftentimes do report back to attendings. So you want to use this time to always act professional. Make sure you seem interested and engaged in the program. Do your best to be outgoing and certainly try and avoid any inappropriate behavior, jokes, or anything else that may be a red flag. 
So yeah, I think it's important to emphasize that part about talking to current fellow or fellows that are there at that program, because I mean, I remember interviewing at one program and if I didn't ask the fellow specifically about their coverage and one of the points that the fellow had made to me is that I, they had put 30,000 miles on their car for driving to various training rooms and things over the course of a year. I would have never known that, but it had a big influence on my decision for going to that program because that's a lot of travel. You know, that there's no way that I would have probably wanted to drive that much during the course of a year, year and a half for a training program. The fellow can give you a lot of insight that you may not get directly from the attendings because obviously the attendings are trying to sell the program to you. But I think the fellow can give you kind of the behind the scenes things that you may not get from the attendings. And they tend to be brutally honest in most cases and give you a really good idea of what their experience has been like. The only thing people need to keep in mind is you are interviewing in the fall. So those fellows have really only been through a couple months of training at that point, and they may not be able to provide a a truly comprehensive look into the program, but at least they can give you some sort of honest insight into what they've had so far. You and I both are unique in the sense that we went through a two-year training program for fellowship. I don't know if many of any of those truly exist anymore outside of an optional second year. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. It used to be more common to have two-year training programs. Unfortunately, as funding has dried up, a lot of programs, including the program which I run at University Hospitals, has transitioned into a one-year program. And the opportunities differ. The majority of two-year programs, if you have a chance to extend that second year, can be more based in terms of producing scholarly activity. So if you're somebody who's interested in doing more research or doing more teaching, you may want to look for a program that has an optional second year for you really to expand the depth and breadth of your education during that training program. But at this point, the bulk of all fellowships are one year. You may have the same sentiment as I, but I I would not trade that two-year fellowship training for a one-year fellowship at any point now. I felt so much more prepared going out into academic medicine, having done two years of sports medicine training rather than just the one. And I had so much opportunity to do stuff during my fellowship training anyhow, but just that extra experience I think was great. Personally, I agree with you as far as the issue with funding. That's always a challenge for any fellowship training program. You know, That's more of an issue for us on the, the faculty level than it is for the residents themselves. But certainly, if we were able to have those two-year fellowships, I think that's an invaluable experience. Very true. I wouldn't trade my two-year program in at all in retrospect. I think it provided me with a great depth and breadth of education. And when we condensed from a two-year to one-year program, I certainly had concerns about losing some of that depth and breadth. And we've just done our best to get it all in with a tighter time frame. And that's the best that you can do given the confines of the situation. Yeah, and I, I think there's just more of the point from that is since they are so rare now is don't don't shy away from that optional second year if it is offered or if it is truly a two-year fellowship that, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to do one extra year than almost everybody else out there. It's really not a disadvantage to you. It may be a little bit financially because you're still getting paid as a fellow, but a lot of those second year fellows are considered attendings at that point as well too. And so they may actually have a difference in what they get paid over the fellows. So just something to think about and put it out there, even though it is still a rare thing. And that's something that's more unique to the pediatric programs than it is any of the family practice. I'm not aware of any family practice programs that are two years. I know there was one or two that were 18-month programs, but I'm not aware of any that are two. Yeah, it may actually give you an advantage when you go and look for a job. If you're losing one year in terms of salary, potentially, you may actually have a leg up on the competition when you go to apply for a job because you've had double the amount of training as other people. 
I agree with you. I don't think it's a negative. And I think just having the ability to see more and do more is invaluable. And having people around who mentor you and having the opportunity to produce something of greater value of scholarly activity, either with research or with cases or with articles that you write can be really important, especially if you're looking for an academic position. Let's talk about after the interview day. So they've interviewed at your program. Do you look for anything afterwards? Do you want that resident to be sending you a thank you card? Or do you want that resident to be sending an email acknowledging that they enjoy your the, their time at your program or that they're really interested in your program? Does that help you at all? Or does that, that help the resident at all in their application process? I don't think anybody's ever wrong dropping an email to individuals who interviewed them and thanking them for their time. For me, I don't count up emails or thank you cards or get concerned if the resident says that they're ranking us first or just says they're interested in the program. But you know, it's kind of like your old school grandma rules, write your thank you letters. You're never wrong writing a thank you letter and just keep it short and sweet and to the point and sending it via email in this day and age is totally acceptable. Now match day comes along and say the resident unfortunately doesn't match through the traditional match or through a scramble afterward. What should the resident do at that point? Is it time for them to give up on sports medicine as a career? And what may allow them to continue to pursue their interest in sports medicine as a career after all? Unfortunately, the match for sports medicine is pretty competitive. And I've already kind of touched on some points that make it more challenging for pediatric residents to match into sports medicine because of the limitations of the free time in their program. I do think if you're dedicated to the field, it's an opportunity to first sit down and reflect and make sure it truly is a field that you want to pursue long term. And then second, it's all about getting reorganized. Don't lose faith. A lot of people who don't match the first time absolutely match the second time. And it's interesting. I mean, we see certain years with higher numbers of applicants than other years. So there's a lot of flux in terms of the number of people of applying. So there may be years where it's harder to get a spot than other years. If you don't match and you want to still pursue the career, by all means, don't give up. There are things you can do to bolster the strength of your application. The first thing I'd think about would be finding a job so that you can be financially secure for that year. And probably the easiest and most applicable thing to do would be urgent care work. Urgent care work allows you a lot of exposure to musculoskeletal care, so it could help you build up your experience level. And there's good flexibility with urgent care. So you could allow yourself time off to get connected with somebody who can mentor you and help you find more coverage experience that you can do during the year. And also you should have the flexibility in your schedule to then think about attending those important sports medicine meetings for networking purposes. And by all means, reapply. Taking one year to bolster the strength of your application is not a bad thing. And like I mentioned before, having that year of experience in the real world can actually help you down the road be a better fellow as well as a better physician. I don't look upon it negatively if people didn't match the first time because I realize how competitive the field is. The only other thing you want to think about is probably not restricting your geographical range when you put together your list of programs you're applying to. I think a lot of people are challenged by the limitations and time off their program allows them to travel for interviews, and that can hurt their chances of matching. So when you're going at it the second time, you have to be really aggressive applying to a lot of programs and probably spend a little bit more time and money to interview as much as you possibly can. All great points. And so finally, it is time for our Pearl of the Podcast. So, Suze, what would you say is a key point or your pearl for a fellowship applicant for pediatric sports medicine? 
I think the most important thing is probably really to spend time in the middle to end of your second year getting organized for the application process. It's time to attend that spring sports medicine meeting, get your list together, think about your letter writers, and write your personal statement so you can hit the ground running when the ERAS applications open up. Awesome. So I would like to thank Dr. Briskin for her insight on seeking out a career in pediatric sports medicine through fellowship training. This will be great material for anybody to refer to if you're a pediatric resident seeking to join our profession that both of us love and have a tremendous amount of passion about. Be sure to check out our entire podcast library of pediatric sports medicine topics at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. You can follow us at our Facebook page for the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast or follow us on Twitter at PEDS, that's P-E-D-S, sports, also S, pod. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast through your favorite streaming platform. Feel free to send us feedback through our website. We'd also love for you to rate our podcast and let your colleagues know about us. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.